Welcome to this conversation with Open-Ended Design. We speak with activists and creators from around the world about design, technology, and culture, unpacking their work, generating new ideas, and exploring their dreams for the future. Um, so Open-Ended is a platform for activist designers and thinkers around the world. Together we'll explore the spaces where creativity, culture and design intersect with technology, science and engineering with a lens on challenging existing structures and entrenched perspectives. We welcome you to join us as we bring a global and truly diverse community of creators together through the Initiative for Design Thinking and Change. And we start off with Marquis Stilwell, who we've already Yay! been getting into. I love it. Thank you. I'm <laughs> so excited to be here. This is awesome. Well, and thanks to Helena, who is an old sort of collaborator of yours. So Marquis, yeah. honestly, like you need very little introduction and I could go on. But mm-hmm. I think briefly, for from my perspective, of course, you're the founder of Openbox, but um, you're a designer. You're a catalyst for building new communities across design and art and culture. And I would say that's also still limiting. Um, and over the last couple of decades, you have had this curiosity for people and spaces uh, and thought about how to make environments, whether real or virtual, uh, better for everybody. And so you have this incredible set of accomplishments. And um, I wonder before going into any of them, if we could talk a little bit about Deem, because you brought it up. Um, yeah. and, and it seems, is this the most, your most sort of recent big new thing? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, so, so Deem I've been working on for the last three years and it materialized with a launch this past spring. And it was born out of this idea that um, design as a social practice should be at the forefront of everything that we do when it comes to, to making, um, building, um, and, and working with people. And so our first issue was all about designing for dignity. Mm-hmm. And these are provocations. These aren't um, like a statements. It's really asking ourselves, what is dignity? How do you design for dignity? Who owns dignity? And we really want the magazine, like a lot of the work that I do is to ask bigger questions. Um, I think that I talked to Helena about this and others. It's like, you know, you go, you spend all this time in school and you, you keep being rewarded because you know how to answer questions, right? You ask a, a young child, hey, can you count to three? One, two, three. And they're rewarded with, oh my God, you can count. Um, but the bigger the bigger opportunity where we should be is asking better questions about what is one, two, three? What does that mean? Um, where are we going? And Dean Journal is a platform that allows us to ask more provocative questions, bring people in that may have never seen themselves as designers and start a better dialogue for who we are as human beings. And so is this, is it online? Is it in print? Who are it's, the people yep, writing? It's, it's on. Yep, it's online and it's in print twice a year. We'll be printing. We have our first issue that just came out, like I said, in the spring. We're working on our second issue right now. And then each month um, we have some type of a feature, um, an article that goes both on our social platform as well as on our uh, web platform also. And so, you know, we're still early. We're still building it. Um, We're excited about the buzz and, you know, we're filling a gap. Um, I, I say that excitingly and it's unfortunate that we're still trying to fill in gaps where uh, women and minorities and brown people around the world have never been represented or seen 
as problem solvers um, in that we've always been asked uh, or seen people who are not us, particularly the older white men who always put on the cape and become Superman, superhuman. And, you know, women and minorities go, oh my God, save us, save mm -hmm. us, you know, redesign our urban areas, redesign everything mm -hmm. that we do. Um, I need a better something. And they come in and actually, no, we, we've done it. Um, and I would even argue that particularly women have been the forefront of design change and have never been recognized. And so, which is why we had Adrian Marie Brown on the front cover of our first issue um, with her book, Emergent Strategy. Can you, can you say a little bit about her and, and the book and why you picked her? Yeah, I mean, her, her voice, I mean, first, you know, she didn't recognize herself necessarily as a designer when we first began the conversation, but through the interview, she really could see the work that she was doing. And Emergent Strategy just is one of a few books that she's written, but it's, it's the one that really encapsulates the thinking um, that we all do around design and understanding how we emerge from within um, and the practice of understanding, you know, even the aspects of looking at plant life and animal life and seeing how they are adaptive and looking at human life and seeing how we're adaptive as well. And I believe that uh, her sensibility to this is phenomenal. And I, I encourage everyone to read her book. Um, I don't want to give it all away. I, I encourage you to, to read it for yourself and understand what does emergent strategy mean to you and your life? Because everything that we do, it's not a, you know, this universal application. It is really personal to you and understanding how you step into your greatness because it's gonna be our collective good that actually makes the change that's necessary. So, I, and I know Helena had something to ask you after this, but I just, I did wanna say that for me, this has been a year of thinking about how to more be myself and how mm -hmm. I express myself in situations where I've always been either intimidated or told how to be. And I found it really resonant how, you know, what you're saying about like, we can be our own heroes. This idea of uh, not being told what to know or how to do something. And in any job or education, school kind of situation, you're usually rewarded for being a particular way and doing things in a particular way. But people like yourself didn't usually define those rules. And so it shouldn't be natural. And I, I, I was thinking back to what you said about ancestral intelligence. It's like maybe you just inher didn't inherit that way of being and therefore it is more uncomfortable um, to place yourself in a way of behaving. And then part of it is obviously so much is socialized. So yeah. I, I find that really powerful. And then I don't want to keep going on about this, but I'm also curious about why you chose to create, you know, you have done so many kinds of interventions in the cultural space. You think about media over so many different forms. Why a journal? Why the written word? It feels as though we're paying less attention than ever right now. Yeah, I think that the, for me, that goes back to this idea of evidence. And because we have digital where if you refresh your Instagram right now, it totally changes, right? And you can go back a hundred times um, during the day and it will look different every single time with new stories. And we don't know what to believe. We don't know what to connect with. We're just kind of becoming robots where we just scroll and like, like, like. We don't even, you can't even tell me what you liked, right? If I told you, give her your phone, now tell me what you just liked and why. 
you wouldn't yeah, know for sure <laughs> <laughs> but the journal you can go back to it right and so this isn't a fast um, soundbite journal uh, it's called a journal not a magazine for a reason because we want people to dive in and these are long form um, conversations and interviews and so building this evidence where you can continue to go back and you can mark up the pages and it won't change you see it it's right there um, and so for us building creating something that was tangible that you can see that's not going to change it's not just important for the way that we see uh, the journal, but the way we see ourselves. Because right now we're all fighting for some level of consistency within our breath. And it's difficult right now. And that's the reason why we did that. Mm. Okay, so to take a step back, Helena, you introduced us to Marquise. And so I wanted you to share a little bit about you know, tell us a little bit about Open Box, what you were Marquise, and how yeah. it to happen for the both of you. Yeah, well, it was quite a um, funny thing because I actually met both of you in the same place. And I don't know if you both, you probably did both know that, but we, we met at the uh, Creative Industries yeah. Federation. And I sort of braved to speak to lots of people for the first time as sort of a young university student. <laughs> um, and then Marquise and I ended up, I ended up sending him sort of a email. And then we ended up getting a, a like a bit of a work arrangement at Openbox. And I ended up going over there, which was absolutely amazing um and yeah it was just being an open box i think the one thing i would say is that the environment is somewhere like i've literally never been before and i think like i've said that to so many people like the only introduction i can give to open box is it's literally like a thinking lab and like that is the best way when you were talking earlier about you know thinking about bigger questions that are like broader and that you don't know the answer to and that aren't pointed it's about like you would go big and then you'd sort of focus in and then you'd go big again and then you'd focus in. Um, and I remember when I was there, we were you were producing the new Bauhaus and I was yeah. doing some sort of background research and <laughs> bits yeah. and bobs on that. Um, but the whole sort of centre of the new Bauhaus as a film was about that kind of thinking um, and about sort of trying things and being able to fail and then also being able to go with like lots of different people on things. But I guess like to go back to what Openbox actually is, I got too excited and sort of <laughs> went into um, like what I thought about it. But it's a human centered design studio is how I'm guessing you would probably yes. raise it yourselves. Yes. And um, yeah. it's working. You work there. You, you're, yeah. you're still part of the family and team. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but yeah, it's like working at the intersections of people and systems within cities. So mm -hmm. I guess like you'd say though, open box is also open docs. It's like mm -hmm. kind of. Um, and yeah, open yeah, docs is a film production company within open box. And that also looks at the same as like, you span so many different projects. It's so hard to bottle up into what open box actually is because there's theme and there's open yes. docs. But um, it all really looks at, like you were saying, this sort of gap of voices and looking mm -hmm. at sort of really weaving in between all these mediums of writing and film and thought and working with people. Um, and yeah, I think like I'd really love to know more also, I mean, directing into a question is looking at 
the new Bauhaus and really yeah. how that sort of level of design thinking. I think I'd never thought of design thinking as how you implement company of it's not really just about like designing a product, it's about just thinking. And for mm -hmm. me that was like really mind blowing because I was like, Oh, I thought the design you, had to be a product. So what is it maybe tell us a bit about what is the new Bauhaus and, and, and how you yeah. started it. Yeah, I mean so so the, the film was focused on the 100-year celebration of the Bauhaus, um, which was a, I guess, an experimental school started in um, Weimar, Germany, um, that went to Dassau and then ended up in Berlin and eventually somewhat dis disbanded and parts of it landed in Chicago to form the new Bauhaus. The new Bauhaus was uh, started and driven by uh, Moholy Naj. Moholy was a designer. Um, it came from Germany and helped to start the school. And it really focuses on his life and his focus on the process and really exploring um, and taking us through a journey of how he saw design. And so that's what the new Bauhaus film is the new Bauhaus was actually a school in Chicago that eventually turned into the Institute of Design that we know today. Okay. Does that answer? Yeah. It does answer. So I have a question uh, kind of coming off of this is, I mean, you, you're working on these films, you have, you're working on open box and, you know, I've asked you in the past about how you manage your thinking and your headspace and your time, because I think that's something that I really need to learn from and be better at. Um, but you seem to keep coming back to the idea of the city. Uh, and I know you've spoken, you know, with Helena about this in the past is, you know, sort of your practice feels really grounded in cities. And I have also always grown up in cities and, um, you know, I'm, to be honest, in a London that feels, devastated like i can't think of other words to describe it it's deserted yeah. I've come back after six months um there's a sense of everybody having left after something really bad happened and um you do wonder about you know some cities will always survive beirut still standings people are back yeah. on the ground yes. um, but you know it takes a lot from the resilience of communities and neighborhoods and cities need to be better. And you do this, you know, think about this a lot in your work and your practice. I wanted to know a little bit about you growing up, you know, the story of you and cities and how this has become such an integral part of your work and, and what you do. Yeah, I, I think I'll, I'll, I'll work backwards into answering the question of just how I got here. But, I, you know, the reason why I focus on cities and the, understanding how to design for better urban living is because cities are changing faster than technology. You know, the new iPhone just came out a week ago, and it's not that different than what we have. Um, you know, I have, you know, the iPhone 10, and now they're at 12. Do I need to get a new 12 because it's so different? Uh, I don't know. Um, but my city is changing quickly to where I don't always know my neighborhood. And it's a visceral feeling and reaction when you get off the subway, you get off a train and something you don't know where you are because the pub or the grocery store or something that used to be there that reminded you of something is no longer there. Uh, you know, I walk around the streets of, of London and I've been in and out of London since the 90s and the city is constantly changing um, in the way that I 
respond to that change and remembering times of going to Virgin Records and listening to music, right? Mm -hmm. there, Piccadilly and just hanging out there for hours um, and running into people, um, you know, is the way I spent a lot of my early time in, in London. That totally has changed. Therefore, where do I connect with people? How do I connect with people? What does that mean when everyone has their head down in their digital device? Um, are we losing not just the city and the infrastructure, but place making for where we can connect? And so for me growing up, a city was always a place where we connected and neighbors, you played out in the street, um, you can walk down the street and you knew your neighbor. Um, people looked out for each other in a different way. And I'm not over romanticizing. There mm -hmm. certainly was always crime. There were certainly always struggle, struggles in cities. Um, but it was just a very different time in regards to how we actually personally connected with cities, um, both from a physical standpoint and a spiritual standpoint. And for me, finding the human element of cities is really important because we focus so much on buildings that we forgot about the human aspect of it. So that's, that's the reason why we focus a lot on cities. I think that was one thing that was really interesting when I remember we used to do our like walk and meets um, yeah. and I felt like you were a person that coming from like a village myself in the depths of England yeah. countryside <laughs> um, yeah. I always found cities quite cold um, and when you sort of we went out of our office you knew loads of people yeah. and you were sort of saying hi and popping into a shop and knowing someone and I've never really experienced someone use a city like that before and I was kind of you kind of touched on it a bit about how you've sort of came like come um, to um use it like a neighborhood but do you think there's been yeah you can shrink it yeah I mean you can really shrink your city, and I would say New York City and London is probably even more intimate than a village because um, like I know my blocks, um, you look out for each other in a very different way. Um, you know, after the Hurricane Sandy and even after 9-11, um, you could really see how everyone came together because you understand the vulnerability. I think in small villages, you take that for granted and you almost forget that there are real human needs because you feel like they're already being met. We're in cities where we all feel very vulnerable. And so there's just this common understanding of how to look out for each other um, in neighborhoods. And so my ability to walk through the streets of Manhattan and say hello and, and you know, pop into a shop, people want to connect doesn't mean we can connect for 15, 20 minutes, but really small eye contact goes a long way in a city like Manhattan. Wow. Um, where do you feel sort of you, you think about Manhattan, you live in Manhattan and yet there is this sort of things translate, right? And so the world, I'm very curious about the future of the city and how you see it because on yeah. the one hand like i have friends who are like moving to the countryside and we we're hearing yeah. suburbs and like there's a yeah. one of my friends is starting an um a work commune on an island in greece where they're <laughs> in the UK, and he's, yeah. uh, he's a cool guy um what is going to happen and how 
I mean, it's, you know, how do you think we're going to address this? And and maybe New York is a is a great sort of um, sort of experiment for this. Uh, is what do we do at ourselves? What do organizations do? And what what happens next? Yeah, look, I mean, with everyone moving now, statistically, people more people are moving in than moving out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, forty to sixty percent of us will still live in cities. Um, in the coming decade. Um, it's, it's a constant growing, especially with the way that we're changing around mobility. Um, you know, less of us are driving, uh, more of us are wanting to walk, more of us are wanting public transportation. Um, COVID has even accelerated what it means to work from home and be even more central and, and hyper-local in your neighborhood. And having services like walking out and grabbing, you know, food and groceries and all those things and not having to get into your car um, is going to become even more of a way of a life. And interesting enough, it was a big part of life, you know, years ago. My grandparents, they didn't really have a car or mm-hmm. have, you know, you know, three, four, you know, ways of being, you know, transported some way. They shared. It was carpooling um, before there was Uber. Um, and it was just called hey, let me pick up something. And before there was food delivery, it was just being neighborly and grabbing something for someone that may be sick. And so there are a lot of things that we've already done, but we moved away when we became such individualized within our production. And I do believe that um, we are going to be moving back towards being together in cities. Um, That being said, you know, those who are escaping in what they call escaping, um, is just a very different way of, of living. I don't know how sustainable it is to to live off the grid. I'm not someone that feels like I need to escape this. I think there's too many too much work to be done to leave. Um, I think there's there's a responsibility that we all have to be here. Uh, I we all have privilege, and I I say we have to put purpose to our privilege. And I don't want to hide behind my privilege. And so for me, you know, we even moved our office down to Red Hook, Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually have a place um, here in Red Hook now as well because I want to embed myself more in the community. And so I'm taking steps to even get closer to the changes that I want to see and make sure that the stories that we're creating, we're helping to be a part of them and that the integrity of those stories are built through real relationships not just design observations and we go back to our safe white boxes and design something and then make a magic, you know, trick of it. So. (laughs) I mean, I wonder if you answered what I was asking, which was probably like the way I come at things is like, how can we scale this to like be a solution for everyone? And actually like your point is so important is this is a time for community this is a time for yeah. problems next door being caught moving sitting with it um yeah, that's it's very hard to think that way probably for me i'm not sure for others who work in technology um because everything suddenly becomes e- equally accessible by many kinds of you know individuals and in many areas um but i wonder if you found that to be a challenge is i feel that the work I've seen you do is quite expansive. And have you found that a very natural transition or maybe I'm just not understanding it? No, I, I think I, I, I think that for me, practicing what it means to be vulnerable every single day, I mean, we've, we've gotten to a place where we're always looking for a vacation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everyone wants to go 
to an island so everyone wants to get away and i'm doing the opposite i don't not that i think that having vacations is wrong um but there's it's very difficult to if you want to watch the news if you want to understand what's going on um but you haven't done anything but you want to complain so I, i i ask myself every day what have i done today that really matters and I want to be able to be very honest and clear with myself when I'm saying, hey, this is the work that I, I want to see, the change that I want to see. What am I willing to give up? Because really the, the dynamics, the negative dynamics that we're experiencing around the world is really about power at the end of the day. It's a power struggle. Um, and the divide, of course, is rich and poor. It's black and white, but really it's about power. And I want to make sure that I'm a part of the solution personally by also checking my power and my privilege at the door because justice, when we talk about justice, it starts with just us, right? Justice starts with just, you know, the four of us that are on this call right now. That's where justice begins. It's not some big thing that, you know, you see off in the halls of, you know, government or university that we don't have to engage with, but are you willing to fight for justice? Then that means that's just us right here. Are you willing to speak up for it? Are you willing to push us to make us better? Which is really what I feel like this platform that I'm speaking on right now is all about. You know, the four of you, the three of you have come together to say, hey, let's have better conversations. And this is where justice begins. That's so interesting. Like, that's so nice for you to say. But also, I love that you're saying about personal change. I think a lot of people right at the moment feel quite defeated. Um, And I think a lot of people feel like they have to, you know, they're relying on government or they're relying on sort of a higher power than themselves to get through Mm -hmm. different problems that are going on. But that's something also I recognise about social change that you're really talking about is that it's really up to us and we have that choice to be able to do something about it. I also was just reading this. Uh, so basically over, I think this summer, you wrote a Medium article that, um, yeah, June 23rd, I think went viral. Like I, I, lots of people shared it with me and I've read it several times and um, before we spoke and after we spoken again and I'm looking at it right now and you, you just said the word that for me has stuck um, most deeply, which is being vulnerable. And so you've written, um, it's titled A Note from Marquis Stilwell, Black Designer and Business Owner to Other Leaders Out There. And I love the fact that you throw down this gauntlet and this challenge because um, it is not only, of course, speaking truth to power, but you give very specific advice to any business leader you know, particularly you're, you're, you know, speaking to business leaders in the U.S., but you say if you are a leader of an organization and you truly want to make a commitment to ending systemic racism, I challenge you to be vulnerable. Give up your power. To end systemic racism, we need an equity-focused approach that redistributes power to include those who lack it. And you know, I think there's it's an incredible time in corporations, organizations where a lot of people are, you know, reading books like how to be anti-racist or why I'm no longer speaking with white people about race. Um, uh, But, and trying to think differently, trying to understand 
the privilege that they've come from. But I think that there is been exactly this lack of someone who's at their level saying, hey, guess what? I'm a black person or I'm a minority and I will share with you what it means to have power and to give it up. And I think for me, that was incredibly brave and maybe maybe for you it wasn't maybe you, you just had to write it but I found it to be really brave because uh your career and your work is built on partnerships and the sense of being equal and I, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about some of your partnerships in arts and culture yeah yeah no I I think that you know I appreciate that thank you and, and I do my best to be brave you know every day and um I it, it wasn't something that I woke up and said, hey, I'm going to write this. This was something that, because of everything that was going on and all the phone calls and text messages that I was receiving, it was something that I knew just needed to be said. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to just leverage my platform to be vulnerable myself. And uh, in, in some ways, you know, there are individuals who responded differently, were like, oh, wow, okay, that was tough to hear. And I wanted to make sure that it was expressed in a way that, again, provokes and challenges and not answering questions, but hopefully getting people to ask better questions. And this idea of bravery um, and stepping into what it means to be vulnerable is really, really important. And it's a practice. Um, it's like empathy. I, I, I talk a lot about we are empathetically out of shape um, in this country. And, and I would say across um, the world, in particular, the Western world is empathetically out of shape. And because empathy to me is a muscle and it has to be exercised every day. And the exercising of that begins with letting go of that power, relaxing your shoulder and being OK with being vulnerable instead of always portraying yourself through Instagram and everything else as something that you're not. But did you, get any, did you get only positive responses? Did you get any pushback? No, and- no, of course, of course. So there's absolutely, there's challenges. Absolutely, there are people who did not want to hear this. Um, there's plenty of people who said, or it's the, hey, that was great, would love to connect um, when I feel like it's appropriate. Because a lot of people um, now, and they, they knew this before, but I didn't need to write this for people to understand my point of view. But I think that now in the face of the challenges, uh, asking particularly white men to give up their power, it, they were never raised to even recognize that there's someone else, the other, mm. right? And so now they're having to face things that they're not equipped to face and they're empathetically out of shape. We've been, we're asking them to run a marathon and they can't even run a lap without killing over and running out of mm-hmm. breath. And now that we've gone past George Floyd and everybody else and all these protests, can we keep this us or is it over? Are we back to some other hashtag um, in our life? Because we're all trying to find comfort and we go on vacation and we're relaxing and we just want to get back to some normalcy. And for, for me, my body has never felt that, ever. Every time I walk outside, I have to deal with who I am as it pertains to how this country sees me and treats me. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, similar to women, when you walk out and you're walking down the street at night, has, has, did we design cities for women to walk safely home? No, we did not. We did not. And we need to deal with that. Oh my God, I love that. So I used to live in Singapore and it's the one place I've lived where I used to think, I used to think about this every single night. If I was home late, it's like, oh wow, I'm not, I'm fine. I'm relaxed. No, I'm safe. And somebody must have thought about that somewhere along the way, whether it was security or design. Yeah. But so, absolutely. But so, have you thought about like what is in that particularly? I'm so curious. I mean, because selfishly, like as a woman, the sense of never ever being like, what is, are there solutions and what are there? What are the solutions in a big city for something like that? We need to over index on the everyone on this call being a part of the planning and design of every city. We have to over-index. And so my call to action and giving a power is to say that we need to over-index. We have over-indexed for centuries when it comes mm-hmm. to particularly men and particularly white men being in power. And we need to over-index. What does over-index about, actually mean? <laughs> meaning that when you think about a board, yeah. So, so for instance, if you're looking at, I'll just use you know, any company, you name it, and they have board members on that company that helped to drive the vision, there should be all women. There should be all women and minorities for the next 10 to 15 years, period. Um, universities across the country should just make women and minorities free education here, go. You know, and, and, and teachers. So yeah, am I, it's a little bit radical on, on that. Yeah, I am because we need to be. Because we're that far. It's the same thing with climate change. We are so far behind when it comes to thinking about climate change that we need to be radical in our thinking because we've been lazy in our approach. That's exactly what we've been thinking for open-ended. And yeah. I, nice. we've tried in our own way to over-index in exactly this way. Is, mm-hmm. it, why, is it, why should it be defined as over-indexing? This is our normal. And this is the normal we choose to define. And it makes us richer and feel more open. And this is our tiny little experiment. So it's so important to hear you to hear you say that and to share that. I mean, I have one last question and then I'll hand over yeah. to Helena to finish off. But, you know, as somebody who is, you're, you're open, open boxes about uh, design and innovation. That's always been what you're about. And you have done incredible collaborations with, you know, some of the most important cultural figures in the world. You've worked with Hans Ulrich Obris. I mean, I would love to hear more about like your collaboration with him. But do you, there is a line between, for me, saying this is how I feel and this is where I've decided to take a stance on what I think is right and wrong versus letting your work do the talking. And do you think about that a lot? Or do you think that you've come to the Yeah, point? no, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I have on my little vision board, you know, let my, let my life tell my story. And I always want to let my life tell my story. Um, and for me, there's a responsibility to also get um, on and talk more with individuals like yourself about about that so that there can be some depth of understanding and some applied and which is why i love the walk and talks that Ellen and i and i would do and it's it's transferring knowledge um we have to transfer to the next generation we need to make sure that this generation that's coming up 
they're pushing all of us. They're pushing me. And, and it is me making sure that there are platforms, which is why Deem and, and the open box and everything that I touch, um, we, we were constantly helping to tell better stories. So. I think you always try to do that through art as well. That's one thing yeah. I really like to know about because, I mean, I've already spoken to you a little bit about like you've been doing art matter and things like that. Yeah. And so through the yeah. Bauhaus, I think for yeah. you as well as the open box whole team, everyone was always telling stories and exploring through visual culture. And I think that's something I'd love to ask you a bit more about. Yeah, I think the, the visual arts are... Um, to me, one of the best and I don't call it purest, but one of the closest purest example of what it means to live vulnerable every day. If, you, if you're around artists at all, you know how they live and they, they, you know, they live with these thoughts and concepts in their head and they're trying to get them out and visually display them um, for us and interpreting what they're feeling, interpreting what they're seeing. And so for us having, you know, collaborations with artists, whether it's Hans Overitz or my friend Chantel Martin, who is also British, um, it is a way for, for us to continue to borrow and make sure that design, design thinking has somewhat over-indexed on the commercial side and we've forgotten what it means to be creative and, and work through the process. And so being able to do that is really important. And one way for us to do that is to make sure that we are collaborating very closely with artists. And what, what were the collaborations that you did with Hans Ulrich? And I think I met Chantal actually when I was there. Yeah, you did. Um, yeah, yeah, Chantal was great. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, in the film, really helping to serve as the, the voice of Moholy um, and uh, and you you haven't seen the film. Any of you seen the film yet? I have to get you guys. Yeah, I the new Bauhaus. I wa yeah, I yeah. watched it. You watched it. Okay, right. I watched it in the office. Right. Okay, okay, great, great, great. So you know what we were trying to do is really embody the spirit of Moholy and really make the film more playful. And so in collaborating with Hans and helping to break up the talking head aspect of filmmaking was really important and he offered a lot of the whimsical funny aspects uh, the peculiar aspects of Moholy that really helped to drive the story mm -hmm. and so that's really important and so whether it's visual artists or theater um, you know writers having artists be a part of the design process is so important so important because artists mm -hmm. are to me our most important leaders Artists aren't there to come in and shine things up and make things a little prettier. They're leaders. And we need to continue to promote artists as leaders. Mm, I love that. I mean, Hans Ulrich also always speaks about bringing artists onto boards of companies, um, you know, yep. sort of yep. along those lines. Yep. There is also a sense that we should be trusting them more than we trust, you know, Absolutely. everyone else Absolutely. pretty much. They have a voice and we should be allowing them to speak. Absolutely. And so, okay, so we, I think we need to wrap up because we've taken a lot of your time. Uh, but we, we usually wrap up with this question. And, and I did try to provoke you in the beginning of sort of to flip it away from what is the dream and to what is the problem. But, you know, we're really curious about this. You are doing so many incredible uh, 
things and you're i feel like uh connecting also with yourself uh you've talked a lot about being vulnerable and uh i'm sure this last year has been um painful on so many levels in making yourself more vulnerable um so you know this is our question to all of our guests that is if you had one radical hope for what's next whether it's something you could work on or uh something that you know you just want to happen and manifest uh what would that be i would i i guess my hope is that we move beyond hope and into something more tangible and that we you know leverage what that means to to live a certain way but at the same time really understand the aspects of what does it mean to give a part of myself every single day and be okay with what i've left behind right um let's move beyond looking and collecting and thinking about what i've held on to my last breath of life is going to be an exhale not an inhale and that's the way that i want to live my life <laughs>